0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt. I identify as a cis white gay man, and I'm also a Chicago resident. But most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Joey Mettler. Joey, would you mind introducing yourself? You're
1: off here at Howard Brown and your pronouns. Hi, everyone. I'm Joey Mettler. I use he, him pronouns. And at Howard Brown here, I'm a licensed clinical social worker on the training and development team in behavioral health. Licensed clinical social
0: worker. Uh, okay, so I had to process your, your title there because it's a long one. Uh, Howard Brown, I realize, is a fan of long titles across the board. Everybody has uh, a lot of different... Um, balls up in the air, so to speak. So uh, the, the focus of the episode today is kind of talking about the concept of harm reduction, um, possible drug dependency, our needle exchange program, Narcan, Suboxone. There's a lot that kind of rolls all into this. But um, according to your role, I figured you would be a good uh, guest to have on the show. So walk me through what does your position entail day uh, to day and into
1: how it relates with all of that sure so just previous to this role which just started in january the last five years here have been on the recovery and pride team which is the team in behavioral health that specializes in substance use focused therapy and so on that team my role was a primary therapist so i ran a support group as well as individual therapy And at the same time, part of the role was also to act as the coordinator of overdose prevention services for Howard Brown. What that meant would be going to community-based organizations, groups, even um, internally in uh, teams and departments that needed information about overdose prevention work, substance use, focus, recovery. And so I would be doing trainings internally and externally of Howard Brown to get the information out there.
0: Gotcha. So... um... What does overdose prevention, what, what information are you getting out there, so to, so to speak? What does that look like?
1: Great question. So that's going over how to spot an opioid overdose, how to respond appropriately to it, the use of naloxone or Narcan, as some people call it, as well as the nasal spray version of it, and follow-up care. So it would be kind of a whole workshop on packaging that whole moment of time of the overdose and how to reverse it. As well as talking about harm reduction um, teaching workshops on how to inject safer how to snort safer so whether it was about the method of use the drug itself or the overdose those were kind of the core areas that i would be teaching workshops on
0: gotcha i'm fascinated by this because um as is you know usually the case with the mainstream news we are we hear a lot about like an opioid ep- epidemic. We don't really know a lot about what it necessarily looks like or how it manifests, or even ways to um, to spot an, an opioid uh, overdose or anything like that. So, um, it's it's refreshing to hear that there are people that are trained in this and are working to kind of bring it to the forefront and in, in educating people on it. Um, is is that program ongoing still? Or because I know you said your role changed as of January. Is that because kind of restructuring or, or is that program still going on?
1: Yeah, the program is definitely dull uh, still going on we do not have a replacement coordinator as of yet but we do have a person on the Recovery and pride team who is taking over those duties so the job is still continuing i'm actually really excited in my training and development role because now it's even more so focused on development and trainings in the community so i still hold on to a lot of that education wheelhouse that i present on um, and continue the work of education while those on the Recovery and pride team are still doing the eternal work to build out harm reduction and overdose prevention awareness
0: so so you mentioned the concept of harm reduction. That's uh, kind of a core tenet of Howard Brown's um, frameworks that we use to guide everything we do here. For,
1: but for people not uh, listening that aren't aware of what harm reduction is, can you run us through it? Sure. So in a brief nutshell, harm reduction came out of the 70s and 80s, um, particularly in the 80s here in the United States. Um, the 80s, we know of the HIV AIDS epidemic, as well as the crack cocaine epidemic. Those two Events combined created the space in policy, health education, social work, to talk about use in a safer way, to help save lives. And since then, harm reduction has grown throughout the decades. To It's not just about use. It's about sex. It's about financial harm reduction, spiritual harm reduction, physical health harm reduction. And so as a framework here for Howard Brown, we're really keeping that holistic view of harm reduction and seeing how the medical team can do it, how behavioral health can do it, how case managers can do it. We can all play a piece in this role of harm reduction.
0: Yeah. So to to synthesize, it seems to me like it's kind of... uh enabling people to live the lives that they're going to lead, but allowing them to do so in in the most healthy way possible. Um, So, you know, if we can't, you know, solve someone's, uh, you know, addiction or change their lifestyle in a way that will um, allow them to be healthier, we're going to do everything we can in our power to um, take away all the negative side effects of that behavior. Is that a fair assumption or am i missing the boat with that you got it okay cool yeah like i said i'm just trying to 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 wrap my my head around these things so um rewinding back narcan so it, it treats an overdose in in what way or how or
1: take me through narcan 101 Sure. So Narcan's kind of like the brand name. You'll also mm. hear it referred to as naloxone. Oh, and there's better. a couple of different types of it. You'll find the liquid kind or you'll find the nasal spray. And what it does is it acts as an opioid antagonist, which means that it blocks and reverses the impact of an opioid in the brain. And so what it does is if you think about Lego pieces, when you use an opioid, there's the opioid goes into our brain and it finds that Lego piece that it bonds with. And then it just matches and that's how the release starts happening. So Narcan or Naloxone goes in there and it separates those Lego pieces and then it puts itself in between so it can't keep causing an overdose potentially.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so, so the overdose is those drug Legos. <laughs> Latching on to our normal Legos, and naloxone kind of is that separator, that barrier between to to stop that chemical process from happening, and 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 so that the the chemical process happening in our brain is the cause of the overdose, but the physical symptoms that we think surrounding uh, an overdose are like secondary. So like, what yeah. what is lethal about an overdose? How does that happen? Um, yeah, and. Be, because we like we there's there's like the the you know depiction of an overdose in like Hollywood or whatever but uh, how do we know like what actually happens is
1: that too graphic a question not at all I think it's a very pertinent important question to ask um, so the the overdose happens when there is uh, the toxicity of the body raises so much to a point where it goes into the overdose um, so just that the the Opioid goes into the brain just like any drug. They've got little Lego pieces. Um, and so the overdose really happens when the individual is perhaps already dehydrated, malnourished, um, lacking sleep. These are some preconditions that are going to definitely lead to a possible overdose. It could also be caused by tolerance problems. Um, so for instance, somebody who hasn't used for a while, they want to pick up the um, a weekend after a few weeks of being off, their tolerance is off. So what they're used to using could possibly create an overdose. Um, and lastly, an overdose could also be caused because you might not know what's in your drug. Dealers cut drugs all the time with things. So nobody's gotten pure cocaine or pure heroin since the 60s. So it's what's in the drug that can also cause it, which is the big one right now fentanyl. That's what's leading to all these overdoses, especially in Chicago. And so if you're wondering if somebody's going into specifically an opioid overdose, the big things you're going to be paying attention to are the breathing. So you want to see if the person's breathing. If they're unconscious, that's a good sign that an overdose is probably happening. Um, the color of their skin, their fingertips, or their lips, because of the depletion of oxygen, might look a little gray, a little purple. Um, they're not responsive. Um, they're really kind of sluggish. So those are some key signs that there's possibly an opioid overdose. Gotcha.
0: Okay, that's a that's a perfect, like primer for, for this, because like I said, I, I, you, you see an overdose in a movie or something, but I, I don't think a lot of people are trained to recognize them in real life and, and what that might look like. Um, so in terms of, uh, naloxone availability, um, you know, I'm a, a cis gay man and I'm out at bars and, and things like that. If if I was in Boys Town or North Halstead and I'm you know witnessing someone going to an overdose, it's not it's not like a defibrillator and EKG machine that they installed in every high school gym. Uh, Naloxone, nine one one would be your best bet, right? Or do are there establishments around the city that have started equipping themselves with this and the knowledge of how to administer it?
1: So you're hitting on my Christmas wish <laughs> that I have every single year is. Places in our community carrying naloxone. It is safe to carry; um, it's harmless liquid, so you can drink it, and it does nothing to you. Mm-hmm. The only thing it ever ever does is act as that antagonist for the opioid. Um, so if there's no opioid in your body, it's like water. Um, so it's my dream that bars would carry this. As an ex bartender myself, I had overdoses happen in Lakeview, so I always carried it on me, but it was never standard policy for the bar right. itself. Nine one one is that. Good consideration to call, but they might not get there fast enough. Yes. Um, and there are certain legal issues that come with calling nine one one about a drug overdose um, that can actually lead to further harm to people, especially in our community that we serve here at Howard Brown. So while it's the best case scenario, they might not get there fast enough, and you might cause further harm by calling nine one one.
0: That's an excellent point. Can you dive into like what that further harm might be in terms of uh, how it might impact like a queer community?
1: Yeah. So we know from medical reports, from behavioral health reports, even just social service reports, that our community often experiences harassment and discrimination within medical sites and behavioral and social services I just mentioned. And so from this research and understanding that we know, it leads to the lack of appropriate care, especially even in emergency response situations. So when we know that we're calling in 911 about a drug overdose, How are we making sure that a police officer is not being called? That police officer coming in, even though there are certain laws that protect us to administer naloxone and, um, you know, protect us in an overdose, what if there's drugs around? What if there's paraphernalia? Now, there is some um, law that does protect against certain amounts of drugs to be not criminalized if they show up during an overdose. But then again, I think that's all trusting on the people that are supposed to be following those rules.
0: Right. and. Speaking personally, I don't know that I have enough faith in our criminal justice system to ensure that the right thing will be done uh, in that case. So, so if our Christmas wish is for more establishments across the city to carry um, Narcan or naloxone, uh, what is the cost to them, or how could they how could they secure it if they're interested in it? What's what are the barriers to, to providing this? that's keeping people from providing
1: it. Yeah. So there's a few different ways of looking at access here. So first and foremost, Illinois has what's called the standing order. So anyone can go to like a Mariano's pharmacy or Walgreens or CVS and they can actually get naloxone. Um, It's usually going to be the nasal spray type and not the liquid um, because then they have to get a syringe as well for that. Um, And it is covered on most insurances, but not all. So the concern is if it's not covered by your insurance, I think the average cost right now is about $65 for that, which is quite a few bucks um, and necessary to save a life, right? If that's not the route to go, then you also have the community-based organizations like Howard Brown Health, Test Positive Aware Network, Chicago Recovery Alliance, who have the supplies to give it to either organizations or individuals who need it, Um, And then finally, if you're a business organization, then you can contact the state of Illinois about becoming a education and drug overdose prevention program. And which means that you're just there to collect data for the city to give that information out there to get the naloxone out there and help um, fight this community issue. Awesome. Is there a shelf life on it? Sure. It does last for a few years, but the thing about naloxone is I've seen it good even three years, four years post um, expiration date. The thing with the expiration date is that the longer it goes, the less um, efficacy it still maintains. So you still want to just make sure that you have an extra dose in case there's fentanyl or if it's like five years old, but if it's one, two, three years old, it should still be good.
0: So you, you saying all this, it really like, you said sixty-five dollars is, you know, not cheap, but it does strike me that like any of the busy bars or businesses in Lakeview would easily be able to afford that and just have it in reserve and at least have basic training for employees that come in, like and and, and like you said, there's no chance of like misadministering it because if you're not overdosing, it's harmless. So exactly. you might as well take the step, get everybody trained, and even if you use it. In incorrectly, you know, it's not going to hurt the person you, you know, we're, were there to prevent it
1: if that was, if an overdose was the case. So, and it's fully legal, it's legal to carry it. And because of the Good Samaritan Act, it's legal to give it to somebody in that moment of need. So there's no potential legal concern for the individual administering it. That's an excellent it. point.
0: So there's no way that like any of these businesses or employees of these businesses could be like sued or anything. No. No. Uh.
1: Okay. No, it's all under the Good Samaritan Act.
0: See, this is this is incredibly fascinating to me because, yeah, I had heard Narcan tossed around, but I never knew like what the practical implications were for it or if it would ever get implemented. So, uh, another aspect that I just started uh, kind of learning about here at Howard Brown is uh, the concept of a needle exchange program. Uh, had heard about it in passing uh, before I kind of came into the healthcare world. Um, what it, can you run me through what a needle exchange program is, who it benefits, uh, and how Howard Brown does it?
1: Yeah, so needle exchanges are um, programs that allow community members to come into an organization to gain education, as well as access to supplies, including needles. Um, you can get sterile water, tourniquets. Band-Aids, and the needles, depending on what you're using it for, if you're using it for intravenous use, if you're using it for hormone use, we've got all the various types of needle sizes that you need for that, the gauges. Um, And so it's kind of a one-stop shop for you to come to us, gain access to all this sterile harm reduction material to further, again, reduce that risk of harm for behaviors that you might be engaging in, and yeah, and like and like bettering the the process
0: for people, even you know even if they're not intravenous drug users, um, like hormone injection. What? It, so there are there are different size different types of needles for like intravenous or hormone injections or all of that. So th- like, are are all needle exchange programs uh, equipped with all those different types of supplies, or are some of them more? stripped down like
1: uh, how how full-fledged is our program compared to others great question yeah it really kind of depends on the program i will absolutely assure you that most programs don't have the needles for hormone HRT, Um, but we do at Howard Brown, of course, because of our clientele, as well as this is coming from our Shine program that we've had for many years. Uh, We just relaunched the new program just recently. Um, In the country itself, we've got, I think, 280 needle exchanges in the country, but there's actually a lot more because a lot of them are done underground that Mm. um, state officials don't know about because of um, the politics of the state, especially um, some more conservative states have a lot of issues with that so a lot of these exchanges are done underground essentially
0: interesting and what does shine stand for i don't know if we ever said that so shine stands for safe harbor incorporating needle exchange gotcha so safe harbor meaning just like uh a safe space to you know attain these these supplies for for whatever it is there's no um preemptive judgment or or you know we we trust that you know what you're going to do with these um that's right that's refreshing to hear um so, I mean, we talked about the barriers to starting needle exchange or to start to using Narcan, excuse me. Um, and, and you sort of said a little bit about needle exchanges like conservative states or conservative governments might um, kind of push back on those a little bit. Uh, but you, you mentioned some are done underground. What does that
1: process look like? I'm just curious. I've met some incredible people in the field who do this out of their cars. They do it out of their basements. For some communities, they do potluck dinners once a month, and everyone from the community comes together. So there are such incredible ways of getting this information and supplies out there that don't require the red tape of going to a public health agency or getting the state involved. So that's what I mean underground, is like out of a car, out of a basement,
0: a potluck. So it it might be like people who work in a medical field that have access to these supplies kind of stealthily swapping out for uh, people that are out in the community that might need them, and they just distribute them at potlucks
1: and stuff? That's some of them. And then some of them are individuals that are just really focused on community activism. And so they'll contact like the Midwest Harm Reduction Coalition um, and ask for supplies so that way they can kind of help put that out themselves. They can kind
0: of liaise with bigger organizations. Mm-hmm. To... Okay, interesting. So in terms of prevalence, he said there's 200... 80, but a lot of underground ones. Um, are we the main uh, needle exchange needle? Excuse me, needle exchange program in Chicago, or are there other ones that uh, you're aware of?
1: If we had to give the trophy to the number one who does the most work, it's Chicago Recovery Alliance. They have been here for decades. They are the champions of the champions in the field. Um, and then they are—they have a lot of satellite sites. So we actually act as a satellite site of theirs. So on the north side, it's pretty fleeting. You've got Howard Brown out of the Counseling Center up here in Sheridan Road. We have the Test Positive Aware Network up on Broadway, but things get a little bit slimmer from that point on. On the south side, there also is availability. We do it out of our 55th location on the south side, and there are a lot of community groups on the south side and the west side who do um, the needle exchange work as well. But depending on what neighborhood you're in, those resources can be really uh, sparse. So it's all about continuing to get the access out there, whether it's a community group or a healthcare organization. Um, but Chicago recovery Alliance does the most of all of it. Okay.
0: Chicago recovery Alliance. That's awesome. I'm, you touched on it. I'm always fascinated and it kind of comes up Uh, when we discuss really any issue on this podcast is the um, concept of like geographical differences when it comes to access to resources within the city. Um, Definitely was a theme uh, when it came to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, But I'm also interested about how um, it uh, plays into, you know, uh, opiate dependency, or needle exchange programs, or the need for them, um, Narcan use—all of those things—is there, a, you know, a trend we see geographically? It might, this might be an obvious question to people that live in Chicago, but it, we do have a nationwide audience. So, um, can you kind of touch on, uh, maybe broadly in met- metropolitan areas, um, what kind of geographic markers or types of neighborhoods uh, that are most at risk for negative side effects of these behaviors? Is that an appropriate way to put that? I, I'm trying to phrase this
1: in a in, in a, a good way, I guess. Sure. Um, yeah, those kind of maybe more at risk for certain uh, health outcomes yes. related to yeah, it. Yeah, that's the way I'm looking for Perfect. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways we can look at this question. So in terms of just geographic use, Chicago is really interesting in the sense that a lot of the opioid use is really on the south side and the west side. And the simulant use, like mainly meth, um, <laughs> mainly meth, amphetamines, and cocaine, Uh, largely on the north side. So really kind of depending on what side you're on, you're going to see a lot more stimulant use or more opioid use. Breaking that down even further, across the last five years of reporting opioid overdoses in the city of Chicago, the group that has been the most impacted across the last five years has been um, black, non-Latinx, cisgender men between the ages of 55 and 64. They've been the number one group um, consistently. And in terms of areas, the number one areas that uh, the top three areas that we're looking at are Austin, West Garfield Park, and Humble Park. The scary thing about these numbers is those three areas combined in 2019 were 20% of the opioid overdose deaths of that year. So 20%, those three areas. Like nationally? Of just uh, just Chicago. Chicago. Okay. So those three areas
0: made up 20% of all of the opioid-related deaths in the Chicago area. Exactly. Wow.
1: Their population, they make up 6% of Chicago. So this is starting to hopefully paint a little bit of this narrative and picture to see where these resources need to be out and what groups we really need to get involved with. The tricky thing with opioid overdoses here in Chicago is that it's the fentanyl. And it's getting larger and larger in the drug supply. And it's actually transgressed from not just opioid use, but it's been mixed in cocaine, it's been mixed in meth. So we're seeing these spiked rates of overdoses at um, Stroger Hospital for cocaine that we've never seen before, but it's because it's been laced with fentanyl. And so knowing what you're using is key to harm reduction and prevention because if you're using cocaine, you're not sitting there thinking that there's going to be an opioid like fentanyl in there. So you might not be ready to have something like naloxone on you to prevent that from happening.
0: Excellent answer to that very complicated question. That leads me to uh, two more questions that your, your answer brought up for me. So um, I I had heard of the dangers of fentanyl and why it's being cut in with other drugs, but I never understood. To me, it seems like why would you... like? why are people putting fentanyl in to other drugs? Is it because it's cheaper so they can make less product stretch farther? Is it because people are just malicious and they want to like hurt people? Like, I, I don't know what, you know, drugs cost or what it takes to fabricate them. So to me, in my head, I was always like, well, fentanyl, see if it's that potent and that toxic must be expensive. So why are they putting it in drugs? What What would be the purpose behind that?
1: The million dollar question that I guess I get asked a lot. There are a lot of reasons, and I think you've named already a few of them. First and foremost, it is unfortunate to say that there are some humans out there that lace or cut the drug with fentanyl and they do not tell the individual that that's happening. Um, The dealer might not disclose that all the time. So yes, those individuals do exist. We also have those that are purposely looking for that high. It's a total high unlike any other thing that they've done. So when you're used to a certain heroin high, this is a whole nother level. And so there are people who are actively looking for that. But again, the problem is the way that it's mixed and put into the compound. So, you know, Canada did this really interesting thing where they got together a coalition of individuals about this and they created what's called fundo and what it is is it's colored play-doh almost material type fentanyl that's color-coded in terms of strength so you can see kind of what you're doing but a lot of what's happening in chicago is not that specified or it's not
0: regulated or anything like that yeah interesting and and so yeah there's it's prevalent it seems like in almost every type of street drug out there um it, it, we, we, talk, we obviously know the role that like Narcan and Naloxone would play in, in harm reduction and, and um, having better health outcomes. Is there a way to test drugs on the front end for this? Um, and if so, what does that look like?
1: Totally. And we have it here at Howard Brown. Love so that. we have fentanyl testing trips. It tests for 16 types of fentanyl. There are a few more, but it does cover at least 16 of those types. And you just... Uh, when you take the testing strip out, you just portion out small portions of the drug so that way you're testing that small portion alone and then use the little strip, almost like a pH strip from chem class, and then it'll tell you whether or not fentanyl's in that drug. Now, the thing is that you can't just tap test the whole batch as it is because it's not perfectly mixed up in this compound. So in order to really test your supply accurately, you need a portion control it out and then test each of those batches for gotcha. presence of fentanyl.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And it, it seems like that would be, I mean, the most logical way to kind of combat things um, is... Uh, Are those available? I mean, we have them here, but it strikes me that places like, you know, music festivals or like we talked about with Narcan, um, should all test strips be available in tandem with Narcan? Is that another (laughs) item on the Christmas list?
1: Absolutely. And that's one thing I definitely encourage people who come in and utilize our syringe service program is that we talk to them. Hey, why don't we give you a few fentanyl testing strips just to be on the safe side? You can give it to a friend or someone. But it's hard to come by around here. Not a lot of agencies have them. Another option you do have is, the again, the Chicago Recovery Alliance. What they have is what's called a spectrometer, which is a device that will give you a complete chemical analysis of whatever you put on it. Oh. Um, and they're a safe place. You can bring your substance there. That's what it's meant to you know be there for. But in terms of the, the testing trips, we have them at all of our clinic sites. We have them out of our Shine Needle Exchange program. Um, but otherwise, they're kind of hard to find in Chicago. Not a lot of people are carrying them yet.
0: Okay, so that's something to be on the lookout for and maybe uh, advocate more and, and kind of bring, bring to the conversation, I guess. Um, we're wrapping up our time here a little bit and we've touched on uh, a lot of different stuff like harm reduction, suboxone, Narcan, all those things. Um, is there any uh, parting words or, or words of uh, wisdom that you want to uh, impart on our listeners after uh, considering your expertise in
1: everything? I would leave you all with the encouragement to continue to be safe and talk. So be safe using harm reduction. Harm reduction is a buffet. I love the idea of a buffet because everyone loves buffets. Mm -hmm. But with a buffet, it's all about what works for you. So harm reduction can be tailored to whatever the individual needs to be safer with their use. And here at Howard Brown, we don't Push abstinence on anybody. We think that that's a band-aid that we are ripping off that maybe you're not ready for. So go slow, give yourself that time to work on your use, to bring it to a safer level. And whether that includes harm reduction or just moderation, we're here for you if you need any of those supplies during your journey. But it's really just about making sure that you never use alone, that you have those buffet of options next to you. So that way, if you're going to use, you can still use and Come out of it. Um, we've lost too many lives, I think, in this world. And so we know substance use is a way to an end and it's never really the problem. It's a sub- symptom of a greater issue. But there's a lot of support out here if you'd like to talk to us.
0: That was excellently said. Um, I will close it at that, but I wanted to kind of retouch on just one thing you said in that and that I hear a lot. I'm always cognizant of like, I moved here from southwest Michigan, which is very small, very conservative, uh, and whenever I like talked about, or heard about, you know, uh, harboring auction or legalizing things, it was always just like, well, you're you're just inviting them to do it more, and it won't, it won't actually, and th- this conversation applied to, you know, um, uh, I can't say abortions uh, legally yet. Um, and this applies to reproductive health and everything as well. Um, you, you kind of said it, but paraphrase again for me, what would you say to Uh, proponents of that theory that uh, harm reduction only enables um, drug use.
1: Harm reduction only helps. It is a way to meet somebody in their time of need who's doing something most likely as a means to cope in life. And if we can show them how to do it in a safer way, we're cutting out those risks. We're cutting out risks of bloodborne pathogens, of potential death, people are gonna use regardless. And harm reduction has proven to be effective in medical care, substance use, financials, like I even said, there's many aspects of harm reduction and we all benefit from it. And we need to think about, you know, what we've been programmed to know is that, you know, the war on drugs, that was a war about race. It was never about drugs. So we need to get the real information out there and trust people who are harm reductionists to give you that information because it's really gonna challenge you. Um, harm reduction is not about judgment in any way, and I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of people to put aside when they're embracing harm reduction.
0: Period, I just wanted to put that little bow on it, and I think you said that so well, uh, cause like I said, I think that's like the number one pushback I hear from people when, we, when you talk about services like this. So thank you for putting that so eloquently uh, and gently and compassionately, cause that's something that, you know, sometimes is missing from these discussions, so. Thank you so much for coming. It's the running joke on the episode that we'll have to have you back to talk more in depth on other (laughs) issues. Uh, But I mean it genuinely when I say it to each guest because truly these layers are so intersectional and there's so many things going on with all of that. I I can't begin to dive in in 30 minutes. So uh, with that, uh, thank
1: you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely. It's been a blast. Thank you.
0: And that has been our episode about Suboxone, Narcan, harm reduction, and needle exchange programs. If you're interested in anything we spoke about in this episode, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening.